What's really going on in the heads and hearts of the humans around you? I'm Mads Grummet, journalist, entrepreneur and startup investor. And I'm Sabina Reid, psychologist, speaker and media commentator. And this is Human Cogs, a podcast about the universal experiences that really matter and the candid conversations we need to have to share them. If you like Human Cogs, we'd love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. That way we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do human well. So a quick Google search shows that almost 800 million people have searched for the term resilience and close to 500 million have searched for the term grief. However, far less frequently and perhaps somewhat surprisingly, have the two concepts actually collided. Dr. Lucy Hone is a best-selling author, speaker and award-winning academic researcher with a gift for translating complex science into practical tools. Regarded as a thought leader in the field of resilient psychology, tragic circumstances forced Lucy to focus more closely on grief when her 12-year-old daughter, Abby, was killed in a horrific motor accident in 2014. Her TED Talk, Three Secrets of Resilient People, was one of the top 20 most watched TED Talks of 2020. And her wisdom can now be found on Insight Timer as well as through her cohort-based and online courses run through the New Zealand Institute of Wellbeing and Resilience. I devoured her recently updated and revised edition of her book, Resilient Grieving, which offers readers practical and compassionate strategies and insights to cope with loss. In this conversation, Lucy shares how she sought to apply her own deep knowledge and resilience to her very personal story of grief. We traverse many topics from motherhood and marriage to career change and empty nesting, and of course, loss in its many shapes and forms that inevitably touch us all. Lucy somehow seems to balance a powerful mix of authenticity, vulnerability, wisdom, curiosity and knowledge alongside her own kaleidoscope of honest and raw emotions, ranging from unbearable pain to finding joy again. With warmth and hope, she reminds us that we can both grieve and live. Here's my conversation with Lucy. Lucy, when I found out that I was going to interview you on Human Cogs, I was really excited. I feel like we have a lot in common and yet we don't know each other. From the outside, this looks like a conversation between two people who have expertise, interest and passion in resilience and in well-being and mm-hmm. in a life well lived. So tell me a little bit about how you got involved in your resilience study and your resilience expertise. Um, thank you for inviting me along. And um, yeah, it's been a very interesting, unexpected journey, really. And I was a journalist for most of my adult, no, well, half of my adult life um, until my early 40s. And sometime around 2008, when the global financial crisis occurred, it seemed to me that you couldn't turn on the radio or open up one of those news weeklies 
without being told that the economy needed to be resilient and that nations needed to be resilient and we all needed to be resilient. And that was the first time that I found myself thinking, actually, you know, this is the zeitgeist word of our time. Do we actually know what it means? And what do we know about resilience? And I kind of laugh now because that was back in 2008. And if we were, if I was sick of it and frustrated by it, then, well, we've come a long way, <laughs> yeah. haven't we? I thought it was the zeitgeist word of our time in 2008. So um, it hadn't got started. Um, so, but that's, and simultaneously, what also happened was that I had, I was a youngish mum. And I had a new friend who was a young mum who was really struggling with her mental health. And then I heard Martin Seligman on the radio talking about the fact that we couldn't medicate an entire generation. And so we had to work out the ways of thinking and acting that help humans navigate change and adversity and live, you know, lives well lived. And so then I discovered that he had a master's degree in wellbeing science and resilience psychology. And then honestly, then I managed to pick myself up a, a scholarship that was only for midlife women, women over 40, who had a degree, who wanted to change careers. So I think I was probably the only person that <laughs> applied for it that year. But that was enough to get me on a plane to Philadelphia. And so I went and studied with Marty Seligman and Angela Duckworth and a whole incredible cast of social scientists that were really just getting started in, you know, in this field of wellbeing science back then. They called it positive psychology. Mm. I hated that name. Mm. So I've always called it wellbeing science. Mm -hmm. Can I share something of my background? When mm -hmm. I was in year 12, apparently I said to my mum, I want to study psychology, but I don't want to listen to people's problems all day. This is 17-year-old Sabina. And at that time, Marty's work was far from being on the map. Um, mm -hmm. Positive psychology did not exist. Um, the constructs of well-being and resilience were not on the table. And mm -hmm. psychology was very much around fixing the broken. And even my 17-year-old self had some sense of knowing that that wasn't where I wanted to put my attention. And that there could be more to human functioning than just mitigating mental illness and mental distress. Correct. Yeah. But I didn't know how. And I wasn't um, a midlife woman changing career applying for a no. scholarship. I was a 17-year-old. And so I actually went off not dissimilarly to, to the early days of your career and I worked in um, public relations and comms. So interesting. Because I couldn't work out how to do the kind of work that I wanted in the available frameworks. And that's exactly the same as me, isn't it? Because I was a journalist. And oddly, the first piece that I ever had published in a consumer magazine was in Harpers and Queen. And it was on the perils of paranoid parenting. I was 23. <laughs> I didn't have children. I knew nothing. <laughs> but I was already like, oh, 
There must be a better way to do this. Yes. Oh, I just, I love that there's, I knew there was synergies, but we're finding even more that that I didn't know about. Mm -hmm. So you take yourself off and you sound like you really deep dived into this, into this experience. You are with, like, for those who don't work in our field, Martin Seligman, Angela Duckworth, these are, these are like Madonna of the Mm -hmm. uh, 80s pop scene. Yeah. (laughs) She's probably the most famous living psychologist. Yes, um, I agree. The biggest, and and so soon after we were, I went there. He had been the president of the American Psychology Association, mm. and he was voted in with the biggest landslide victory of any president. So that kind of gives listeners an idea of his popularity, mm. and his contribution was vast. So, and um, the most amazing thing for me was that when I turned up there in the fall of two thousand and nine to Philadelphia. They had just picked up, as a department, they just picked up the contract to train all of the American army. Mm. So for someone like me who's main interested is, I'm all I'm interested in is how do you take the best of scientific findings out of academia and make them helpful to people in their everyday lives? Mm-hmm. As you can imagine, yeah, you couldn't really get a much more sceptical, tough-nut audience than those American soldiers. So... And they also had the Pen Resilience Program, which they were taking to schools and just starting to be able to demonstrate that, yes, they could teach people to be more resilient. And these were learnable skills um, and replicable. So, um, yeah, it was a really amazing time to be there. And it was also around that time for Aussie listeners that Martin Seligman spent, I think, the better part of a year at Geelong Grammar School, which is a well-known school in Victoria, in Australia, after, and it it was probably, I think, the first school that he really immersed himself in. Mm, wanting so to Dr. Denise Quillen, who is my co-founder at the Institute, she was one of those first team of trainers at Geelong. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we ended up, she and I, doing a lot of work in education mm. on the back of partly the fact that Marty going to Geelong and Geelong putting all that money into positive education, as they used to call it back then, spearheaded the interest in bringing wellbeing to the heart of the education context And because of that, New Zealand and Australia actually advanced much faster than anywhere else in the world with wellbeing and education. And so Denise and I ended up co-authoring the the Educator's Guide to Whole School Wellbeing, Um, because one of the most amazing things I live in New Zealand is that it's a Petri dish Mm. for things like that. You know, you can move fast here. Mm. Yeah. We're kind of getting into the weeds, aren't we? But yes, it's been such an interesting process. What comes from this conversation is the passion that you have, the knowledge, the depth of experience, the expertise, the the people that you're you're learning from and the inspiration that you have in this area is very clear and very loud. And so I believe it was six years later after you first signed up at UPenn that your world completely changed. Mm. So 2014, um, we'd already lived through two years of earthquakes here in 2011, 12, going into 13. And then in 2014, on an unsuspecting Saturday afternoon, it was actually Queen's birthday weekend, we were heading away, three families, um, and at the last minute, our beautiful 12-year-old daughter, Abby, hopped in the car with her best friend, Ella, who was also 12, and Ella's mum, Sally, who was a really great friend of mine. 
And as they went part through the backcountry lanes of the South Island, the car sped through a stop sign at 100 kilometres an hour, crashed into them and killed all three of them. So, yes, my life was... Um, our lives as we knew it were smashed apart. You know, it did really feel like a wrecking ball had been thrown into our lives, a hand grenade. So, um, yeah, um, it's bizarre, isn't it, to be the resilience academic. And then I did all that professional work in the post-quake environment, and I thought, to be honest, that was my calling. But then, um, you know, here we are, just tested um, with the loss of our beautiful wee girl and and in all realities, Savina, it's kind of hard for me to remember now. It's at nine years. Um, she was 12, you know, when getting to the point where she's almost been dead as long as she'd lived. And it is, um, I've learned to live without her. And we have relearned to live in the world is one of our phrases. And um, I, I almost find it quite hard to remember how awful it was. Which hopefully will give people who are grieving um, hope and heart that you know you truly can get through the most devastating loss somehow. I wonder what it's. <laughs> she would be twenty one. Would she be twenty one now? She would have been twenty one on April the twenty fourth, and so we went away. And just our family and my sister and all the cousins, yeah, and had a terrible, glorious weekend. You know, with just all of those. Um, it's it's all the conflicting emotions, isn't it? You know, pain and awe and beauty and celebration and misery and crying and oh, I can't wait from that weekend going. <laughs> Enough, <Yeah>. I'm done. <laughs> yeah. So, um, twenty one, she be, and her brothers are twenty three and twenty five. And you have told this story so many times. I've read your book, Resilient Grieving, which is just phenomenal. And I've got such a long list of people that I want to share a copy with or encourage them to, to purchase it or borrow mine. Um, I know you've recently updated it and revised it to add some some new content um, from when you first released it. And of course, you did a extraordinary TED Talk that I believe broke a lot of records in 2020 in New Zealand. What's it like every time you tell the story? Because you've taken mm. my breath away, even though I've heard I've heard you tell the story numerous times. I've read your book, I've seen your TED talk, and there's something happening for me now as as a parent, as yeah. a parent sitting with you. It's funny because um, funny, not funny. <laughs> um, I'm we've just been away. With my eldest son and his girlfriend for um, eight days, and having just updated resilient grieving, I I am a writer more than anything. I identify as a writer, and if you're a writer, then you don't know why, but you just somehow do. And I'd said to my husband before we went away, I I think I need to make peace with the fact that that was my book of a lifetime. I'm never going to write a book that passionate and it fell out of me I can hardly remember writing it but then I'm on holiday and this is to answer your question and I'm looking at my boy mm -hmm. and I think actually the book that I want to write now is about our relationship over 
a lifetime. And what it is to be a mum, you know, it's an ode to motherhood is actually the book I want to write because so many people ask me all the time with my resilience hat on, how, what can I do for my children? How can I look after them? How can I protect them? How do you live with that vulnerability? And we've just gone through that empty nesting in the last few years, probably five years now. And I continually tell myself how lucky I am to have my husband because not everybody does. Um, and so that makes, that protects me against empty nesting agony, but it doesn't take it away completely. And I don't think there is much written about that heartfelt heart ache that you're so proud they've gone. <laughs> and yet I'm all about, I guess, helping people own their negative emotions. And that's what it is, isn't it? For you, it's and I, it's, it's the bittersweet love that comes with being a mother. Yeah. And I too am an empty nester. <laughs> mm. And it's hard. It's an ongoing, slow stealth of a loss. Mm. While we're here, while we're in this nest, this empty nest, what are some of the insights that you have gleaned from Abby's death, from mm. your resilience knowledge that applied to this new loss of life in your two sons? Yeah, it's such a good question. Um, so Resilient Grieving was originally called What Abby Taught Us. That was the publisher's name for the book, and I thought it was an okay name at the time. But about 18 months later, I remember looking at it and thinking, wow, they really nailed it, because actually that is really the fundamental process of bereavement is making sense of something that doesn't make any sense. It is reintegrating this lost story into your life schema. You know, if I take us back to when she died and, I, and that wrecking ball smashed life as we knew it apart, that's what death does, and particularly traumatic death because it comes so quickly. And so all of the way you think life should roll out and behave and, you know, all of your core beliefs are smashed apart. So the process of relearning to live in the world is somehow slowly making this congruent story and bringing this terrible fact into your life story. So what it, what has death taught me is the other book that I'm really interested in writing um, because it has taught me so much. Um, it Oddly, Sally, who died with them, had just introduced me to that beautiful Mary Oliver poem, What Will You Do With Your One Wild and Precious Life?, like like three weeks before they died, she shared it with me. And, and it is about mindfulness and it is about paying attention and knowing that life is wild um, and precious. And I don't think I needed to be taught that lesson, but boy, have I been taught that lesson. And so what the whole thing has taught me is to, to know what really is important, to know what your values are. For me, contribution is a really important part of my life. Um, so as long as I live in alignment with my values and I am, I know what matters and I focus my attention on the things that matter and the things I can control, then I have also learned to live with the vulnerability of not being able to control everything 
which speaks to that bit about empty nesting, isn't it? You know, it's what you want. You want them to flee the nest. And that is one of the ways I get through it is to tell myself that not everyone does flee mm. the nest nowadays, you know, mm-hmm. really um, an increasingly large proportion of our young people aren't feeling good enough to leave the nest. So I try and shift, do the mental agility piece and shift my attention onto the fact that I should be grateful for the fact that they do both feel confident and that they're happy and they're living fulfilled lives. And as a mother, the other thing that really interests me is I'm determined to swap my hopes for them with curiosity. So I tell myself, instead of having hopes, which is my agenda, that actually I'm just deeply curious to see um, how their lives play out and to play a supporting role in any way I can. But at the same time, I do acknowledge the gr- the grief. And I, you know, we came back from that holiday and um, I cried. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's hard living without them, isn't it? Mm. And I imagine there's another layer there for you that you've been through the most yeah. unimaginable grief. So I try and tell them that. Yeah. I try, in a nice way, I say to them, if I'm being a bit pathetic, just mm-hmm. bear with me mm-hmm. because one of you didn't come home one day. Yes. Yes. And is that a fear you still live with? I think it's a fear that every parent lives with. I don't live with it in a debilitating way now. A, a, a couple of years in, I did, I think particularly because they were starting to drive. I mean, it was just awful years for us because they were 14 and 15, the boys, when she died. So, of course, we were very quickly. Um, Ed was actually 16 a week after she died, and my husband went and bought him some fast car. I mean, honestly, you look back and think, well, that was bonkers, but I think that was just grief. And so I really worried about their driving for a few years. And then they went off to uni and, you know, I, yeah, I don't want to talk about them. It's their lives. But um, I was acutely aware of their that vulnerability for a couple of years. And I used to tell myself that unless the policeman was standing at my door, then I would hold on to the fact that no news is good news. Mm-hmm. And that was the best I could do. And a bit of deep box breathing and mindfulness and all of that chucked in. Mm. And when you when you reel off that list, a bit of box breathing and a bit of meditation. I mean, I know as a psychologist, sometimes when I talk about box breathing or meditation or mindfulness, you can almost see people's eyes glazing over. Like, is that all you've got? Like, I'm desperate here. I'm in yeah. so much pain. Do you understand my despair and the agony in which I'm living? And you're mm. talking about box fucking breathing. Mm. Mm. Not you. That's not me saying that to you. That's no, what I. I, I <laughs> I've had these conversations with people where they've said to me, I'm really worried about, you know, our teenagers. And we've had this conversation about hope and curiosity. And and I've said to them, honestly, sometimes I feel like I have this image of me scraping the bottom of the barrel so much that all I can see is my feet sticking out <laughs> of the top. But, you know, if you have had, if they've got secure attachment, mm. if you've been around, if you've been the askable parent, I've ended up saying, well, we're just on hope and a prayer now. Yeah. And I don't even pray. Yeah, it's a good enough. It's the good enough approach and to parenting with love. I think good enough plus love. And trusting the process. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and yourself. I know you've talked about after Abby's death, you were written you know, a report card that was not the report card any parent wants to hear or any human wants to hear. Mm-hmm. There were stories of statistical stories that you would experience estrangement and divorce and high risks of mental illness and mm-hmm. um, you could write off the next five years of your life and 
pretty much that your life was over as you knew it. Yeah. What was it like to get that kind of messaging? In truth, if I try and remember back, it sort of trickled through. So I can remember the moment when somebody mentioned the divorce statistics, which actually aren't true. And you and I probably both know that actually acute trauma and bereavement is an amplifier of relationships. So the research shows that um, actually it's really mixed. Basically, if your relationship is already pretty solid, likely to stay together. If it's not so good, it was already having some issues, then yes, parental bereavement is likely to drive you apart. Mm. Oh, then we were told by victim support to write off five years of our life to her loss. And I remember looking at my boys in the kitchen going, well, that's not going to work because mm. they're here right now. And it wasn't the authority, it wasn't a health you know, professional who told us about the family estrangement. It was another friend who, you know, just a cup of tea in the kitchen. And he said, oh, yeah, we lost my brother. And he said, actually, I kind of lost two brothers because the other one, you know, then went AWOL. And I remember looking at him going, oh, jeepers, mm. we... I can see that too. So, you know, and like you, my brain works in terms of risk factors and <laughs> risk assessment. And so, but I did also know all about post-traumatic growth and I knew about strengths and I knew the importance of positive emotions. And I had this mantra in my head that kept saying, choose life, don't, not death, you know, don't lose what you have to what you have lost. So I had some pretty good tools to overcome that and more than anything i had hope because i had seen all of the literature that shows that the most common response to potentially traumatic events is resilience you know we have it within us to get through all kinds of terrible adversity using very ordinary processes i love that anne marston who was one of the earliest researchers calls it ordinary magic mm. And I think that's what it is, you know, pretty ordinary ways of thinking, acting and being. Yeah. You've got to be a you've got to know them. <laughs> and then you've got to be able to do them, which is hard when you're grieving. You know, reaching out to friends and things is hard when you're grieving. I'm interested in some of your your earlier influences before before you're a writer, before you studied um, positive psychology and before you experienced the death of your dear Abby. As a child and growing up, how much how much was resilience modelled in your childhood? What kind of conversations did you have as a young person around hope and um, capacity for coping? if not using those words, but by living, living mm. those words. It's funny, I don't think we had any of those words in our childhoods. And I notice that and when I read books nowadays, when I read fiction, and I bet you do too, that um, people talk about, I was reading that Go as a River book recently, and um, they were talking about resilience. And this is based in 1940 and I thought I bet they weren't talking about resilience back then so I don't think we had explicit conversations about those things and I wouldn't I'd go as far as to say it wasn't even my mum is the academic driver in me she she wasn't um, university educated herself but she believed in my academic potential my brother was the big influence my brother was the hope and the dreamer and in fact, all three of us, my sister left home and went and drove the length of Africa. My brother went off to the Caribbean and sailed around the world. And um, 
late and I went to South America and we I think we all believed in making the most of our lives and at in our 20s my brother wrote to me about um this quote which I now realize my sister had sent to him that says sometimes we will sail with the wind sometimes against it but sail we will not drift nor lie at anchor and my brother died sadly two years ago and I I have a lot of um living to do for him too you know that lust for life I think truly I don't know where it came from, but we three got it. <laughs> that's what I'm hearing really loudly, and I'm tr- I'm trying to make sense, or I'm curious mm. about where that's come from. Well before any of the experiences that you and I are talking about, mm. and it's if, funny, you, if it's it? three for three, three for three kids, tell me about your parents. Something happened, didn't it? Yes, um, that's something in the water. Yeah, but you know, they divorced. They weren't happy. Um, but we had a we had a lovely upbringing you know and we were all close um and we have fun we sang and danced a lot in the kitchen um and my dad had that zest for life mm. and my mum had the academic um quiet mm. intelligence I'm more introverted like her you got zest Unless, for life too. You sound like you've got the best of both of them. Well I have now I have to say one of the things that's really fascinated me is that um so in terms of strength psychology, enthusiasm and zest for life was prior to Abby dying, one of my kind of, you know, characteristics of strengths. But of course, losing her, I lost that for a good three years, really. And um, it was like having a personality change. And uh, and that has really fascinated me. So my PhD was looking at high levels of well-being and you know who had who was flourishing and what were the enablers and characteristics of flourishing adults and then losing abby really made me realize that flourishing wasn't good enough because one of the key absolute criteria of flourishing is that you have a high level of positive emotions well you can't do that when you're a bereaved parent so it's been really good because it's challenged my um, preconceptions of well-being and flourishing and made me rethink some of that um my definitions of well-being are you saying that in those initial three years after abby's death that you didn't experience any positive emotions i had lots of positive emotions and lots of meaning but no joy none of those really high valence you know i remember the first time at a concert about three years in where I found myself dancing again and I thought, oh, <laughs> this is good. I didn't think this would ever happen again. So I probably had been to other concerts and tried to muster that enthusiasm, but it wasn't real. It mm. wasn't genuine. It was exhausting. It was putting on a show. And it did take a long time for that real zest for life to come back Um and, and that's been a very interesting experience mm. for somebody in my field to realise. And yet I would still say I was flourishing because I had really high levels of meaning and purpose. I was driven to bridge the fields of resilient psychology with bereavement because there was nothing in 2014 when Abby died. Um, it really felt like those two fields had never encountered each other. So my work in resilient grieving, I called it resilient grieving because I'm an academic and that was what I was doing, was bringing resilience 
to um, to grief. The grief context, yeah. And with regards to grief, you make mention in your book, of course, about Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief and how that was handed out to you on numerous pamphlets, I'm sure, mm. and how it didn't land for you and then how later on you found that there were some uh, holes in its scientific rigour as well. What are your thoughts now on the five stages of grief? Um, well, I am a social scientist first and foremost, so when I went looking at that literature, the thanatology, which is the bereavement literature, is really clear that there is only one. So Elizabeth Kruber-Ross wrote about the five stages of grief um, for people who were anticipating death. So that's the first thing. It was actually for the pe- for the dying. And then later they were kind of morphed to be supposedly what people go through during bereavement. Yes, when they've lost someone else. So it's a very um, different experience. It's very different. Mm-hmm. And and the research shows that really most studies show that, no, we don't go through those five stages, that actually grief is much more individual and complex than just those five things. What are the five? Let's think about them. What are they? Um, so denial, bargaining, anger, um, something and acceptance, acceptance, depression and acceptance. Yes, and not linear. When the when the model first came out, they were purported to be a linear process, and then it was quite an awakening when research started to say it's not linear. We bang between acceptance, mm-hmm. denial, anger, depression, and now yeah. I think, as you're saying, we know that. It's not the be-all and end-all of grief frameworks. and Well, actually, so there's only one study that actually supports them and, and ca- lots of studies that say, no, that is not what the bereaved report at all. We have we run a coping with loss program and we run an, a live online course and we get people in that too. We've got an emotion sheet that's got 45 different emotions on them. And one of them said to me the other day, I've ticked 44. She said, the only one I haven't ticked is boredom. <laughs> um, and so it gives you some idea of the, you know, the complexity and the range of emotional landscape that we go through. Mm. You know, it's fine to feel pride and um, inspiration and serenity and hope and all of these things, you know, positive emotions do still occur, even in the midst of loss. And so many people tell us that they fear they're not grieving properly if they go, if they're not going through those five stages. Yes or they're experiencing positive moments. So um, that's a shame, isn't it? Yes. Uh, We can laugh one minute and cry the next. We can be angry. We can be joyous all in the same day. I'm curious about something you said earlier, and that was that you're really passionate about making a difference and sharing the knowledge and the insights that you have on a a broader scale and um, through academia and beyond. How much do you think we seek to impact others as a coping mechanism for dealing with our own pain? Yeah, I think that's a really um, smart point. And you and I will both see that when the worst thing about death is that we, we can't control it. We have no control. And I think it's probably the one of the most marked points in any human existence, isn't it, where you are really faced with the fact that you have a pitiful level of control. So when we are faced with this awful moment that we can't control, the 
the reaction, the natural human reaction is to rush to help and control and do things to fix it afterwards, which is why we see, I get so many people asking me all the time, what can I do for my friend? You know, they've just lost their sister, their mother's just died. Can you give me a counsellor is, is a, a daily email I get. And I'm often at pains to point out to people that they might not need a counsellor, that most people cope without needing any kind of professional or medical intervention. But it is it speaks to our urge to do something and contribute and support and control wherever we can. And I think that my, my desire to um, expand people's agency was already developed, but I'm very willing to admit that losing Abby and having that experience and the earthquakes, very similar experience, the earthquakes and COVID, the earthquakes and COVID were very similar experiences um, where you cannot control the situation. You, you can vent and rage about it, but it's not going to change the situation. And with the earthquakes, quite similar because we had over 10,000 aftershocks in a two-year period, and we had six, I thought it was five, someone told me the other day it was six, um, individual events over a magnitude of five earthquake. And so really for a couple of years, you lived under this umbrella of just kind of dread and low-grade anxiety, thinking, what about now? What would it be like if we had one now? Would I be safe? And that, I think, has also amplified this desire to control what I can control in me. Mm. And and when we seek to control out there, what might we be missing in here? I don't know. I, I think part for me, the most magical dance of resilience is about exerting as much influence as, and control over the things that you can and simultaneously accepting you have bugger all control actually um and living with those two things you know that to me is kind of the exquisite dance of us when we are operating out of this capacity for resilience you know it's not a fixed trait it's a capacity that lies within us all what happens when one part of a marriage is steeped in expertise and knowledge? And I'm going to use in, at this mm -hmm. point, uh, in you know, inverted mm -hmm. uh, talking marks around that around that phrase because mm -hmm. none of us are an expert in everything. And when it affects our life, sometimes that expertise goes down the gurgler. What was it like, or what has it been like when this is your area of expertise and it's not your partner's expertise? And yet you shared the loss and the grief of Abby. Yeah, so the thing I most think about our relationship in those in the years, but particularly in the weeks and months straight afterwards, is that what I will remember is my husband's openness, his emotion his willingness to be emotional. And the things that I fell in love with him for 30 years ago which was his absolute um, honesty and willingness to dive in and express himself emotionally and not really care too much about what others thought. And that those qualities were the ones that came to the fore again in our darkest hours, and they are what saved us. And he's an, he's an incredible man, and we've been on a terrible journey together. And 
what I have read from the bereavement literature, of course, is that the couples that do stay together find themselves thinking, you're the only person who really gets this. And so we have this incredible bond and life experience um, that is only really relevant to us in the same way. And I think it is a, it is definitely a real bond. And yet some others could choose to see that differently. And some partners, and I've worked with partners like this, mm. couples who feel that the other one doesn't understand their grief. They've both lost a child, but my experience is different to yours and you are not understanding and feeling what I am. And so mm. the chasm widens. And um, bereavement makes us feel so lonely doesn't it i've definitely experienced that when my mum died i was 30 and that i remember my husband saying to me then oh she'll be all right she had cancer and me saying no don't say that to me just don't say that to me because she might not be all right and she wasn't all right mm. i felt i have felt lonely in grief and certainly so many of our clients express that loneliness and isolation because Grief is as individual as your fingerprint. Every relationship is different. So we all grieve differently and we're all grieving different relationships. And so that is the magical thing about our online live course is that people come along kind of with trepidation that they're going to be sharing grief in a, in a, on a Zoom call with others. And then when they start to do so, that is the real magic is they start to realize that while we all grieve differently, there are themes that we share and that that isolation and feeling like misunderstood and not understanding why your partner grieves differently. Wow, everyone else feels like that too. So yeah. there's real solace, isn't there, and validation. That's one of the big challenges of bereavement is that you, you need each, you need other people, you need support so much, you know, at this critical time in your life. And yet it is a time that tests our relationships so much. And when you've lost someone as well, there's that added layer that you are peculiarly so, um, what's the word? You know, you're so sensitive about relationships because you know that they're not here forever. You get that, those attachments that you feel so deeply about actually aren't permanent and they are fragile. So it puts that extra layer on our relationships, which makes it extra challenging, I think. Mm. In your TED Talk and also in your book, Resilient Grieving, you give three of your number one, oh, they can't all be number ones, can they? <laughs> your <No>. top three <laughs> strategies, your top three strategies for what has really underpinned all of your work and what has been most impactful for you on your own journey. What are those three? So they are to understand that suffering and struggle happen to us all, that they are part of life as much as we wish it wasn't true. When, when did you first know that? When did you first learn that? I see that isn't that an interesting question that's such an evolution of my thinking there was a moment where we were introduced to Kristin Neff's work when I was at the University of Pennsylvania so that was the first time I learned about it but oddly what underpins all of that self-compassion work my mother taught me self-compassion because I can your parents are very present mm. yeah yeah very present in some of the stories that you tell and the, the way that you see the world, of course they are. They are for, for many of us. But And isn't it the biggest gift? The you biggest. Know, my mum told me that any day I can put my feet up or get to bed in the afternoon was a good day. <laughs> and I love that. I mean, what a legacy. Mm. So that's the first one is to be kind to yourself because we all stuff up. 
um, and shit happens. Mm. And it's important because it stops you from feeling singled out. It stops the why me question. The second one is about choosing where you focus your attention, um, which speaks to the kind of mental agility um, that we that is part of resilience. And that is that we are able to notice what we are focusing our attention on and that we don't only focus it on the negativity bias, all the stuff that we can't do, what we've lost, what we're bad at, our weaknesses, FOMO, because actually if you're only focusing on those, you're missing out on so much that is important in life. And so it's not toxic positivity. It's about redressing the balance and just noticing the broader picture. And that's along the lines of that. I had a rule that was my two what if rules. And I would let myself say, you know, what if I hadn't put that weekend away? What if I hadn't said, yes, she can get in the car that day? And then I'd think enough, which leads me to the third one, which is, and then I'd ask myself, is what you're doing helping or harming you in your quest to get through this? Um, and as you know, that question comes from cognitive behavioral therapy um, and ACT. And it's just a great, robust question, of, you know, a practical question of asking yourself literally right now is the way that I'm choosing to think, act or be right now helping or harming me in my quest to maintain this relationship, get up in the morning, um, get home safely get over, learn to live without Abby, whatever it is. It's the flexibility of it that I think is so um, valuable. And one last thing I want to say about the three of them is that what underpins them, which makes sense to me now as a researcher, is the first one is about self-compassion. Um, and the, the last one is about self-regulation. And the other one is about uh, something I've forgotten about. So that's classic, isn't it? Well, <laughs> it is Friday afternoon. It, it, I imagine self awareness. I was going to say self awareness. <laughs> that's what I was going to say. It's being aware where you put your energy, mm. where where you mm. put your attention. So that's a beautiful summary. I like how you've uh, how you've under or you've highlighted that those three different angles, which came later, of course, where I looked at them one day and went, "Oh, yeah, isn't that interesting?" What would you say to someone who's listening, whether they're dealing with whatever hardship, whatever adversity life has thrown at them, be it grief or something else, and they are doing their best, perhaps, to live by similar, mm. you know, approaches as you've as you've highlighted, and that is to focus on what's working, um, to know that everyone suffers, this is not about me, and also to, uh, now I'm thinking about the third one is, oh, am I doing, what I'm doing is helping or harming me in this moment. So imagine one person in a family or in a partnership is really living those as best they know how, but the other is not. Mm. A sibling, a partner, a friend, and the other is pulling down, pulling away from this kind of energy that you're espousing as being so helpful. Mm. And it's so tricky, isn't it, when you, we all of us at times have people close to us that we worry about and want to help, but stepping in and suggesting to them that they could think in a different way and that would be beneficial for them is so hard. Um, and so what I suggest in my work in those instances is that you 
have an awkward conversation, but maybe you're not the person to have the awkward conversation. Maybe there's somebody better placed than you or to triangulate to say to that person that I really care about you. What I'm seeing is this. And I think it's getting you down the way you're doing whatever it is. Um, and I'm not the only one. And Sabina here is going to bravely talk to you about it as well. And ultimately, I'm doing this from a caring perspective. And you can shoot me down and not welcome it. But I think that awkward conversation, I think quite often people feel that they have to get it perfect. Um, and that stymies them. And in my work, I encourage people to find the motivation to have the conversation by asking themselves, what is the cost of not having this conversation? Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, that's a big, that is a big question. And we know emotions are contagious. And mm -hmm. so, um, in fact, I'm thinking of a story I know of a, a baby that died recently and there's so many people in that story. There's a mother and there's a father and there are grandparents and in-laws and they all have their different grief story and I've seen mm. them all respond very differently. Mm. And that's so common. So my other piece of advice would just be to go easy on each other and not expect each other to all be on the same page and just to respect that everybody had different relationships that kind of spider's web metaphor, I think, is quite helpful. Mm. That we were all we were all have our own spider's web, and we're all interconnected in different ways. And what we're all doing now is reweaving that web in a way that makes sense to us. And different people will weave it differently and different speeds. And we somehow have to be okay with that. Mm. That putting more pressure on each other to grieve in the same way at the same pace is actually just not realistic and mm -hmm. nonsensical. Mm -hmm. It's messy grief, isn't it? It's messy. Life's messy. Grief's messy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, for those who are listening also who are interested in some of the programs that you run, where can people find out more? Copingwithloss.co is our website. Um, and we do have a fantastic support group um, that is called Coping With Loss Community that's on Facebook, which is unusual because... I don't know about you, but I've looked at a lot of those bereavement communities and they are hopeless places, whereas um, our community is a place of hope and action. Mm -hmm. So if you want those research-informed tools and conversations where people are sharing what's working for them in a realistic way, it's not toxic positivity, but they're pretty brutal, mm -hmm. but they're not there just to share their death story, mm -hmm. which lots of those groups are. And these, um, these groups are not just for people who have lost a child. They're no. in all grief across yeah. the lifespan. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Lucy, you said in your book, I'm astonished by how much we have healed. The good news is that we are leading happy, fulfilled lives full of love and meaning. In fact, I can no longer recall how awful it was, how crushed I felt, how much her loss physically hurt me. Mm. So true. Honestly, I, I, I know I had that pain in my solar plexus for so long. Um, I know that my hair fell out. You know, I got those awful sweats, terrible sweat. I could not stop sweating. Um, dry mouth, sigh. Oh, the physical manifestations of grief were just awful. 
debilitating and then the rumination of never stopping thinking about her. I used to try so hard to think about the boys in, as, as obsessively as her. And I'd get kind of 20 seconds in and think, oh, yeah, but they're alive. Anyway, back to her. And it drove me nuts. And I remember I wrote a blog post about it called, called Waiting for My Brain to Catch Up because that is what it's like, isn't it? But it did. It took, it did take a while. Um, but we, I think that was what astonished me most was that I discovered that it was possible to live and grieve at the same time, you know, we still went, I went back to bed, I wailed and cried, you know, I drove around the blocks sobbing, you know, I sat in the supermarket car park and ran away and for a long time, all those things. But at the same time, I stopped crying in the supermarket car park and go up and get on with ordering dinner. Buying dinner, not ordering dinner. You don't do that in the supermarket, do you? I wish. <laughs> that's a fantasy. That's a fantasy statement right there <laughs> when you're ordering dinner instead yeah. of buying and cooking dinner. Yeah. It is a, it is a story. Of, it's, it's, it's a bigger story than the loss of Abby. It's a bigger story than a mother's grief. It is a story and it's shared with such compassion and vulnerability of how to do life when you're bleeding. Yeah, to somehow um, scrabble along. So that is our definition of resilience is that it is about steering through mm. whatever you're facing in whatever fashion you can manage so that either you can continue to feel good and function well, which is our definition of well-being, or you can in time get back to feeling good and functioning well. You know, it's not pretty, it's messy. You don't get style points for resilience is what Karen Rivich <laughs> used to say. And um, and I think that's true. That That's that's what I think of resilience is it's just this kind of, yeah, long struggle of climbing forward in what feels like quicksand at times or always climbing up a mountain mm. only to have to do it again the next day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. exhausting mm. we do finish our chats lucy on human cogs with the same question and that question to all our guests is who do you think is doing human well in this world mm, what a big question so i i think i'm not i can't think of anybody off the top of my head and i think it's actually more that i don't i'm reticent to single people out because it's not so much a person as a persona for me that anybody who is managing to withstand and mainly function while they are navigating tough times and that has hope and belief that they can get back there and is brave enough to ask for the help they need those are my heroes yeah yeah well you're living and breathing it and teaching all of us to do the same along our journeys and to your beautiful Abby, to your beautiful mm-hmm. Abby, may we always, you know, speak her name and remember who she was and what she's taught you and us and us. Thanks, Sabina. Yeah. yeah um, goodness knows what she would think, but um, it was a pleasure to have her for 12 short years. Yeah, I can see that and feel that. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Human Cogs. 
We hope that this conversation has led you to think a little bit differently about yourself and those around you. And thank you for all the amazing feedback that we get about these conversations. If you do like Human Cogs and what we're doing, we would love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. What that means is we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do human well. well.